0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Dixie State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences is bringing the Remember the 43 Students art installation to their campus. Uh, This installation commemorates the six people who were killed and the 43 students who were disappeared in a night of unspeakable political violence in Iguala Guerrero State in Mexico on September 26, 2014. We're coming up on the 7th uh, anniversary. John Gibler, a journalist based in Mexico City, who's written extensively about Mexico, political violence, and this particular atrocity, will be in discussion with Vince Brown, head of uh, Dixie State University's Institute of Politics, on September 23rd on campus as a part of uh, the surrounding events. We're going to talk about this uh, event uh, today and uh, what it means. Uh, today, we're we'll, uh, we bringing in uh, journalist John uh, Gibbler, uh, and uh, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, good morning, Tom. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Good, good morning. Uh, we bring in Vince Brown as well, Director of Dixie State University Institute of Politics. Thanks for joining us.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on the program, Tom, and thank you for bringing attention to this matter.
0: Thank you. And Christopher Gonzalez, Director of USU's Latinx Cultural Center, Professor of English and Associate Dean in the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences, joins me in the studio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for the invitation. So let me start with uh, John Gibler. Uh, let's just jump right in and, and talk about this. We'll talk about the installation as we go along. Um, so, first of all, maybe set the set the scene. This uh, the, the the students involved were students at a teachers' college, right, uh, nearby to this uh, uh, to this town of Iguala. Uh, so, just tell me about this uh, college, I guess first of all.
1: Absolutely, Tom, and, and once again, thanks for your attention to this issue. So, the students were at the Ayotzinapa. Teachers College, which is a four-year public university. All the students who are admitted receive a full four-year scholarship, and there are two degrees offered. One is in um, primary school or elementary school education, and the other in bilingual uh, elementary school education for those students who speak um, an indigenous language. Um, And and there are uh, four spoken in the state of Guerrero. The school is known for a long history of social activism, and the students who arrive there are mostly coming from uh, rural communities, uh, farm-working communities, and indigenous communities in the state of Guerrero, but also from other states around the country, though mostly in the central and southern parts of Mexico. Um, and so these are students who who arrive at Ayotzinapa seeking this four-year university t- degree to become teachers, um, and mostly uh, thinking that that's really their only path to a profession that um, from the communities they come from, um, there are very few avenues to seeking a university degree because of the um, lack of access to resources and the lack of scholarships open or available to
2: them.
0: So, um, the, and these are all, all young men, right?
1: Correct. The, the system of, of these rural teachers' colleges in Mexico includes Female-only colleges, male-only colleges, and mixed colleges. Um, but I used to up as, as a male-only uh, four-year, um, you know, live on-campus uh, college.
0: And it's interesting uh, some of the traditions that uh, have uh, uh, grown up. But you mentioned uh, political activism. Um, also, this uh, interesting uh, method of commandeering buses. Tell me about that.
1: I know, we've got to get to that. So, because it it, out of the context of that region in Mexico, it sounds really crazy, but what I hope people, listeners, can understand is that this was something that had been going on for years and had been tolerated, uh, if very begrudgingly, by local authorities. And what this involved was so the students. They attend this university, and this university, one of the main parts of the curriculum is that students have to travel all across the state of Guerrero to observe teachers in the classroom. Um, And that's actually in all my interviews with Ayotzinapa students, both survivors of the attacks and other students. That was the thing that they described as the most exciting part of their education, the thing they liked the most, right? More than reading books, more than their relationships with their professors. Like, they really described the travels out to classroom observation as the thing that um, they're most excited about. But there's a catch, and the catch is that the school is so um, underfunded that the school has almost no transportation for these students. So the state-mandated curriculum requires them to travel all over the state, but they don't have either funds or their own transportation services. Besides, at the time, they had, like, two vans for, you know, 400 students that are constantly traveling across the state, and this is a region of the country, again, that's been very economically uh, let's say deprived or economically violated by by decades if not centuries of of policies um, that isolate rural and isolate indigenous communities and so these are regions that don't have a really high functioning much less inexpensive uh, system of public transportation so what the students would do they basically blockade a highway, a small highway, a rural highway in a region where there's, a you know, a long stretch. There's not a curve. Nobody's going to get hurt. Um, and the students are all completely unarmed. There's no guns anywhere, right? They're, they're wearing T-shirts and sandals and blue jeans. And they block the highway with their bodies, usually, and get on board a bus and tell the driver, okay, this bus is being commandeered by the Ayotzinapa Rural Teachers College, and so we need you to take us out to our classroom observations. And this has been something that's been going on for years. On the night of September 26, 2014, the students were trying to get buses for a different purpose, which was to create a caravan of buses to travel to Mexico City several days later in order to participate in an annual very large march that happens every year in Mexico City commemorating the October 2nd 1968 massacre of students at the hands of the Mexican army this is a, a watershed political event in the history of Mexico and an event that um, people from all walks of life commemorate by participating in this annual march in in the context of not only Yosinapa but the 15 rural teachers colleges across the country something that's very important. So that's what the students were trying to do. They were going to block the highway. Usually they even do it at toll booths so there's less risk to anybody, which is what they were doing that night in Iguala. They were blocking or they were, you know, gathered by two toll, two different toll booths trying to collect buses to then create this caravan.
0: Uh, and before we have you recount the the events of that night, the terrible events of that night, uh, maybe set the scene uh, the the political scene in in Iguala, that's where the students ended up. Um, it became kind of emblematic of uh, the corruption, right, uh, all over uh, many parts of Mexico. It's, uh, so, tell me about the mayor, the mayor's wife, uh, for example.
1: Sure. And, and again, I'm, I'm, apologies kind of advanced if I wander, or I'll, I'm trying to keep my responses short because I know this is radio. But these, as you can imagine, are events that are that are incredibly complex. I'm sure both Vince and Christopher can add a lot of a lot of depth to this. But in short, um, over the last 15 almost years now of a so-called war on drugs and war on drug traffickers, which is really a U.S. invented political platform which has been mostly imposed in countries around the world and and very much so in in Latin America and, and which Mexico begrudgingly participated in for decades and then kind of wholeheartedly embraced after the 2006 election when uh, uh, still an alternative or opposition party, which was the PAN, the National Action Party, was in power, its second term only after 71 years of single-party rule in Mexico, a very weak mandate and a very questioned uh, election in 2006, which was charged both uh, legally and in the streets as being a fraudulent election. So in that context, the president then, Felipe Um, Calderon announced this kind of war on drug traffickers, which is way too complex to go into uh, at this moment in in detail. But what it led to was, uh, I think, uh, a situation where what used to be relations between state officials, politicians, police officers and drug uh, growers and drug traffickers that could be described as corruption, they became more fused, like the, the the institutions tasked with policing drugs and the institutions tasked with growing and shipping and distributing them kind of merged. Think of like two corporations that were earlier related, like a publishing company and a distribution company, and here they kind of fused. And so in the city of Iguala, it's a very important city in the transnational heroin industry, because it's really the largest city coming out of the region, the mountains where uh, a lot of poppies are grown for the heroin industry, um, and is a kind of initial transit hub for that industry. Um, you, that's what you see, and that's what we'll get into this, but the events, the atrocity of that night of September 26th, 27th, 2014, revealed to us is the fact that the drug trafficking organizations and the policing organizations, the police, the army, they were all working together.
0: Yeah, in fact, um uh, you know what what is suspected I guess or known at least at that point uh, at that time in Iguala, the the police were essentially I mean they had uniforms on but they were they were part of uh, you know the gangs right part of these um trafficking organizations, organizations right
1: Indeed. and I mean, I guess the term I use is kind of merger or fusion because I like actually using business terms. I think it helps us understand what's going on because it's a huge major industry, transnational industry, even if it's an illegal industry. Um, but also one of the first things my investigation and my research in Iguala showed me, and this is because of contacts and sources that they describe this to me, is that there was actually a group, an elite group, inside the Iguala Municipal Police called Los belicos or the bellicose ones, right, the warriors, um, who were really in control of, uh, of the day-to-day operations of organized crime inside the city. Uh, they aren't, like, the biggest people in the chain of command, but inside Iguala, those were the people calling the shots. And so they were, yes, they were official police officers with badge numbers registered on, you know, getting on the payroll, and simultaneously they were the people in charge of organized crime. And when I say organized crime, I mean drug trafficking, but also kidnapping for ransom, also extortion, like a mass uh, kind of operation of using exercising uh, violence to accumulate capital and cash.
0: Before we go on with the the story, this, this uh, horrible uh, violence here on the on the. Uh Evening of September 26, 2014, that's what we're talking about. Art installation is uh, being brought to Dixie State University campus. Uh, let me turn to my other two guests to uh, anything you'd like to, uh, to, to add to, in setting the context before we go on with the story. Uh, so, um, uh, Vince Brown, what, uh, what's top of mind for you as we, as we go along with the story?
2: Well, I think the thing to note from the top, uh, this isn't a simple story. Um, we try to present it in a way that as simple as possible, but it was a very confusing night. Um, the the students had commandeered the buses to travel to Mexico City to commemorate the 1968 massacre that uh, John had, had mentioned that were surrounding the 68 Olympics. Um, but I would say that it was believed that, that you know, two of the buses that were... Uh, caring students were secretly transporting heroin without the students' knowledge. And so perhaps we can speak about this as we go on. But um, as John had noticed, the the U.S. drug war um, and perhaps the culpability of of the fact that the U.S. buys $500 billion of drugs annually from Mexico makes this a relevant issue from the top because the, the drug war, penetrates it deeply into all levels of Mexican society. And I think I'd like to talk about how this relates to our own actions and, and the devastating impact it can have on, on others around the world. Um, but um, the, after the, the shootings and the horror that night, um, there, was a, there was a cover-up. And uh, there were lies that began immediately after the events. And it goes all the way up and down the levels of of government in Mexico. Um, And so it continues to resonate in Mexico strongly, and it it will continue to resonate here, I think, and around the world.
0: Yes, we'll... uh we will uh we will underline those things as we go along. Christopher Gonzalez, what uh, strikes you in the discussion so far?
3: Yeah, um two things. First,
0: um we uh just a few days ago uh commemorated
3: uh the 20th uh, anniversary of the 9/11 attacks. And the exhortation to never forget, right? Um and for many years those families that that had a loved one uh, affected and, uh, and were killed in those attacks um, just wanted resolution they 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 just wanted to know and I I think to the families of these 43 students um, who who still are trying to get answers um, they of course want justice you know we, we all want justice those of us who are on in this conversation certainly and those who are listening um, and and so so I I think about those families, and I think about the need to shine light uh, in the darkness um, and then the other thing that strikes me is you know we're talking about students, right we uh, you and i tom are are on the campus of a university right now um, and of course john and and Vincent are um, you know doing a lot of great work at um, at universities and the the terror of those who are charged to protect us, ostensibly, uh, disregard that, right? So it was. We were just talking about that. The police, um, those who are who are supposed to be protecting people, are actually, um, as John said, they're 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 now business partners uh, with uh, criminals, cartel members, uh, other organized crime. Um, and, and there's, there's, there's sadly a long history of that kind of violence around the world. I think of Tiananmen Square, I think of Kent State, um, and, and we could just continue to kind of go through that list. And so um, I, I, I wonder what, what we can learn from this particular tragedy that can help not only uh, uh, these particular families, these, these, these particular spaces in Mexico, but what we in the United States can learn from that.
0: Well, let's uh, take a break, uh, and uh, when we come back, uh, we'll have John Gibler to tell us the, the story of what happened that uh, that horrible night. Um, we've made reference to it. We'll have him tell us. Uh, September 26, 2014 is what we're talking about. We're coming up on the seventh year anniversary, and there's an art installation coming to Dixie State University. Uh, it's called Remember the 43 Students, and we'll be talking about that art installation as well. That uh, art installation goes up tomorrow. Um, I think it runs uh, through October 1st Um, and as a part of uh, the surrounding events, uh, John Gibbler uh, will be in discussion with Vince Brown uh, on September 23rd, 4 p.m. in the Gardner Ballroom on the Dixie State University campus. Uh, so we are talking with a journalist John Gibbler, we're talking with Vince Brown, director of Dixie State University Institute of Politics, and Christopher Gonzalez, who's director of the USU Latinx Cultural Center, professor of English and associate dean in the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. We'll have more following this.
3: Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from listeners like you and the Nora Eccles-Harrison Museum of Art, presenting your place in the multiverse, featuring Jean Lau, artist talk, book signing, and reception, Saturday, September 18th in the Russell Wanless Performance Hall from 5 to 8 p.m. Details at artmuseum.usu.edu.
1: Did you know that kindergartners can learn to code? Coding toys, which allow children to program simple sequences of light, sounds, or actions, are becoming more and more accessible to parents and educators. Research is ongoing to determine how these toys can enhance problem-solving skills and help foster early computational thinking. By studying the way kindergartners think and reason, researchers hope to evaluate the effectiveness of such toys so that educators can make more informed decisions about the toys they use
0: in early childhood settings. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utime, Tom Williams. Dixie State University's College of Humanities and Social Sciences is bringing the Remember the 43 Students art installation uh, to their campus uh, in St. George. This inst- installation it commemorates the six people who were killed and the 43 students who were disappeared in a night of unspeakable political violence in Iguala, Guerrero State in Mexico. On September 26, 2014, we're talking about this with John Gibbler a journalist based in Mexico City who's written extensively about Mexico political violence in this particular atrocity. Uh, We're also talking with Vince Brown, head of Dixie State University's Institute of Politics, and with uh, Christopher Gonzalez, director of the USU Latinx Cultural Center, professor of English and associate dean in the USU College of Humanities and uh, Social Sciences. Let me start again, uh, John Gibler, with you. Um, so I'll have you tell, tell me at least some of the events. There's so many events, uh, complicated, uh, the, this, this horrible night of J- September 26 2014 in Iguala. Um, but I guess the place to start, at least for me, is the, the students, uh, the political activism was, uh, kind of a part of their college lives in this, uh, rural teachers college, um. But uh, what they were expecting, at worst, I think, was all right. If we confront the police, uh, we might get beaten up, taken to, you know, taken to jail, beaten up, and released. That's kind of the worst that they expected. Obviously, they got uh, much, much worse. So, tell us, uh, you know, in in brief, uh, what what happened.
1: Thanks, thanks so much, Tom. Yeah, I'll try to do this in just a couple of minutes, and so it'll obviously be be a, an overview, but um, but in a, hopefully a useful one. So the students were, as I mentioned, they were trying to gather buses together to create a caravan to travel a few days later to Mexico City to commemorate the massacre of October 2nd, 1968. And initially, they went to the capital of Guerrero, which is Chilpancingo, which is just about 15 minutes down the highway from the school. Um, And when they got to the bus station there... The state police had set up uh, a riot police line around the bus station, anticipating the students trying to do exactly what they were doing. And this is an important detail for me because the students, they weren't looking for a fight, right? They weren't like, hey, let's go fight with the cops. They were just trying to get buses. And so when they saw the riot police lined all around the bus station, they just turned around and went back to the school, right? And they laughed about it. They're like, you know, the, the cops won. You know, they like they stopped us from getting the bus and like, OK, well, we have to try again. And so what we're going to do is go in the opposite direction down the highway, which is about an hour and a half away to the city of Iguala. That's what they went to do on the night of September 26th, uh, uh, 2014. They were monitored using a, high, a federal uh, uh, surveillance program known as C4 in Mexico. So the Mexican military, the federal police, everybody was watching the students' movements on their security video screens in real time as they traveled along the federal highways already aboard two buses that they had commandeered uh, several days before, and in fact, had already used to go out to observe classrooms. And so, aboard these two buses, the students, there are about 90 of them, 80 of which were first-year students, they were freshmen, they were, you know, anywhere between 18 and 20-something years old. they had only been at the school for a month or so. For most of them, that day had actually been their first day of classes, um, and they ended up dividing up. So one bus went to one toll booth on one kind of edge of the city, another one went to another one. And I won't go into – there's a lot of important details there, but I'll skip ahead to what happened was they ended up grabbing a bus um, outside of one of these toll booths. And the bus driver said, sure, you know, I'll take you guys back to Ayosinapa and all that, but let me drop off my passengers in Iguala. So they said, okay, and a commission of nine students got on board that bus. You know, they again, completely unarmed, no weapons. Um, they went into Iguala, into the bus station, and once they got there, all the passengers got off the bus, and the bus driver then locked those nine students inside the bus. Those students then used their cell phones to call their um, their compañeros, their comrades, their you know fellow students out on the highway and say, hey, they just locked us inside the bus in Iguala. So that's what... Uh, set off both of the buses of students coming inside the city of Iguala. Both those buses went straight to the bus station to go collect their friends. And so when the bus driver wouldn't open the door, they ended up busting the windows and opening the door themselves. And then once they were in the bus station, they said, okay, we're already here. We're at the bus station. We came to get buses. Let's just grab a couple. And so they grabbed quickly two buses Um, And then at the last moment, a third bus, Um, and that'll be important for what Vince already mentioned about the hypothesis that one of the buses might have had um, a secret compartment for a heroin shipment, for example, destined for the United States. Um, Those five buses then left the bus station. They took two different routes, two different exits out of the bus station, and thus two different routes out of the city. So three buses went straight through the center of Iguala and another two buses went out to this avenue that completely rings the city, known as the Periferico. And so the three buses that were driving straight through the city were very quickly attacked by the police. When I mean attacked, I mean the buses were driving down the street and police started shooting at them. Initially, students testified that the police were shooting in the air and then later started shooting directly at the buses. Um, The buses were able to go all the way through town and to these events, by the way, there's security camera footage. And I interviewed a number of eyewitnesses who were just, you know, people in the plaza that night. Turns out there had been a political event that the mayor hosted, the mayor and the mayor's wife. Um, but that political event um, was compl- uh, ended without any kind of protest or any kind of interaction with the students. It was already over when the students at about 9 o'clock that night were already on their way through town in those buses. They were able to get through town, get to the other edge of the city, and at the very intersection with the Periferico, which again rings the city, um, that's where they were stopped by the police, and they were brutally attacked with machine gun fire um, by police officers. One student, Alu Gutierrez, was shot in the head at that moment, fell onto the street. He actually did not die for a while. The students thought that he had he had been killed, of course, because he'd just been shot in the head, and they had seen that up close, um, but then... Uh, they saw him convulsing on the street and spent a long time trying to coordinate an ambulance for him to be rescued. That took almost an hour. He would finally get to the hospital and be uh, many days later pronounced brain dead. Um, he is still alive and still unconscious. Aldo um, Gutierrez. But that was this kind of that was the event when Aldo got shot in the head when all the students whom I interviewed described to me going into a kind of state of shock. As, as you mentioned, Tom, this kind of transition between thinking that they might get beat up by the cops and taken to jail to thinking that other, other things could happen. Um, and so the buses were, were kept there by the police. The last bus to arrive in that caravan, so the third of the three on that intersection, um, all the students were removed from the bus, were beaten. Um, one of those students was shot in the arm. Um, and then they were laid face down on the pavement there uh, curiously, one of the police officers who shot the student in the arm called an ambulance and had the ambulance take that wounded student to the hospital. We can come back to that because that's a really important detail. But all of the other students from that third bus were later piled into the police uh, patrol trucks and then driven off. And those students, a group of about 20-something uh, students, have not been seen since. Now, there were two other buses, right, that took the Periferico, initially out of the bus station, drove all the way around the um, the city. And in a very brief summary, one of those buses would be stopped, completely surrounded by police, and all of the students aboard that bus would be loaded again into police patrol trucks and driven off, and they have not been seen since. And that's why we use this very awkward... Um, Conjugation of the verb to disappear someone because these were the police, you know, uh, officially taking into custody citizens, students, and then disappearing them. So those are the from those two buses, the one at the edge of the center of town, the other out on uh, the pithyfatical on the way to the highway. Those two busloads of students comprise the forty-three students currently disappeared um uh, the other students of that fifth bus were able to escape they all got off the bus um that bus interestingly was stopped by federal police officers those 14 students were able to run off and escape into the hillsides. they were chased at different times they were shot at at different times but all 14 escaped and survived they become also an incredibly important testimony because they were eyewitnesses to the bus that had been completely surrounded um, ironically, right in front of the state courthouse. So it's a bus of students surrounded by police in front of the state courthouse, and all those students were disappeared. In brief summary, you had five buses of students all attacked. Um, Some escaped, some hid, and two busloads were forcibly disappeared. Three students were shot dead at different moments by the police that night. One of those students' bodies was... um, mutilated and discarded on the edge of a trash dump, I think, as a kind of act of terror. Christopher mentioned the idea of the terror of those charged with protecting being those who instigate unspeakable acts of violence. I think that was very much what was going on with that mutilation of the student's body. Um, and, and then there were an, a sixth bus, which was a, a third division youth soccer team, which was uh, brutally attacked. Three people were killed in that attack, including a 14-year-old uh, soccer player and, and the bus driver, um, and people were brutally wounded with gunfire but survived, a lot of the trainers and other soccer players and coaches. Um, and I interviewed several of the eyewitnesses from that soccer team, and they, one of them described to me that after the barrage of machine gun fire, he heard one of the police officers say, and I'll loosely translate and also edit out uh, cuss words, Um, oh my, you know, we made a mistake, Uh, we messed up, um, and these aren't the ones we're looking for, and that's when all the people who had just attacked that soccer team got back in their police trucks and drove off. So in total, it was actually six buses that were attacked. Um, Also, people were hit with gunfire who were just passengers in taxis who were um, eyewitnesses, people who came to help the students at one point. Uh, There was a, a return of ununiformed masked men with assault rifles, who an hour after the students on uh, the edge of the city of town had been disappeared by the police, returned and opened gunfire on everybody there. Um, and in, that, in those coordinated attacks, the people involved, we now know, you know with, with no doubt, came from three different city police use forces Uituko, um Iguala. And Cocula, they also came from different state police forces from the state of Guerrero, also the federal police forces, and importantly, the Mexican Army officials were involved in different ways. That's very complex, but there are Mexican uh, military intelligence officers on the ground, and a patrol unit that came out into the streets and took control of the city after the the, the series of attacks. Also throughout that entire time, we know because of multiple eyewitness testimonies, also security camera footage, that the police maintained armed roadblocks on all of the entrances and exits of the city. So what all of this, you know, we're talking about more than 100 police officers from this, these various different police uh, courts, um, and including the Army. Uh, what this shows, it shows a massive coordinated series of events, series of attacks and... Um, And the fact that with all of these different police forces involved, and again, including the military, this isn't a confusion, right? This isn't some kind of haphazard event. It might have been chaotically carried out, but this was something that was coordinated. People were using radio and phone communications to coordinate. um, And there had to have been a chain of command in operation, right? Because you don't have just some local mayor or drug trafficker um, telling the federal police and the army what to do. And because of that analysis of who participated, how, why, and when, and where, we have, I think, the description of a very coordinated military-style attack where a chain of command had to have been in operation. So that's my attempt to do it as as, as briefly mm-hmm. as possible.
0: And, and the result is several people killed, 43 students disappeared. Uh, just a horrible, horrific uh, night. Um, I want to get into the investigation, and you could kind of put that in air quotes, right? Um, um, but uh, first, um, I-, I want to read this. This is something you wrote, uh, John Gibbler. Although it, uh, talking about the, the, the events that you've just described, was neither an isolated event nor the largest massacre in recent years, what occurred in Iguala struck at the core of Mexican society. Uh, th- this th- This became a flashpoint, did it not?
1: It absolutely did, and again, because I think so many factors were in play that for me, what I think happened is it kind of it pulled a veil off of say, uh, kinds of violence that had been previously disguised as just drug violence or gang violence and and the the intense political and institutional nature of that violence was made very clearly visible. The fact that these were not only police officers but all of the police officers in the area from three different levels of government coordinating with the military. The fact that the people under attack were not only students, but college students from a very um, combative uh, activist um College with a with a history and a legacy of social activism and social mobilization. Um, The fact, also, you mentioned cover up, and Vince also mentioned cover up, which indeed, or investigation, should be put in scare quotes because what the federal government did first, the state government very briefly, and then the federal government took over the investigation. And what they did was basically use the uh, federal attorney general's office to support the police and continue disappearing the students. They lied. They tortured people. They destroyed incredibly essential evidence like uh, security uh, camera footage at the state courthouse. Um, They also invented and planted false evidence. They invented a false crime scene, a place where actually nothing happened. And I'm able to say this with great confidence now that these things were false and these people were tortured because it's been seven years. And there have been numerous exhaustive studies carried out by um, independent investigative uh, organizations including my own investigative work as a journalist, proving without a doubt that the government scenario initially, which is that the students were confused for a rival drug gang, and that the police only stopped them and then turned them over to drug gang members, which there's no evidence of that ever happening. In fact, what we see is that the police and the drug gangs are, as, as Christopher said, they're business partners. Um, uh, and, and then there's been, you know, literally millimeter by millimeter analyses of the trash dump where the federal government said these students were incinerated all in a single night in this open air uh, trash dump in the rain by the way um, where it's now been proven that there's just no forensic evidence whatsoever of uh, human remains and or even a fire of that scale in nature taking place at that event during those dates. Um, So that's why we can see that the so-called investigation which was really a cover-up, was actually even more than a cover-up, it was the continuation of the forced disappearance of the students.
0: Let me turn to, uh, to Vince Brown uh, for kind of the political context here, and, and maybe talk a little bit further about the cover-up, the word you used, uh, the words you used. Um, it was interesting for me to, to remember, this is in the context of the early years of the Peña Nieto administration, I believe, and part of the Peña Nieto brand um, was we're you know we're past all this the those horrible year Calderon years right and so this is very inconvenient politically uh, for them perhaps an incentive to you know try to rush through at the very least an investigation maybe talk about uh, the, that context and and uh, and that phrase you use cover up all
2: right so the lies about the attack began immediately and um, John is. Kind of touched on that. There were many cover-up stories, like the narcos mistook the students for a rival drug gang, and that the mayor of the town that you had mentioned, Barca, had used the local police just to prevent a protest at a local uh, political event. Just these government stories don't don't hold water, um, as John noted. They had tortured most of the arrest suspects to extract confessions. There's evidence that. Police and military at all levels were involved. Um, one fact that stuck out to me was that some of the students' cell phones later pinged off of the local military base after they were placed into police cars and, and taken away. Um, the, there, there was an Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Um, they assembled a panel of experts, and they did an investigation back in 2015, and they said that the government's claim that these students were killed and then put into this garbage dump um, and burned was just scientifically in, impossible. Look, kidnappings and forced dis- disappearances have, have become commonplace in Latin America. Um, and, and as John had mentioned with, with, with respect to the drug war, uh, you know, there's a hundred thousand Mexicans in the last eight years have been killed and 20,000 have, have disappeared. So, um, you know, at, at its core, look, this is a human story. Um, we can talk about the, the political aspects of it, and um, I'd love to. You, you know, the universal human rights that are implicated, freedom of expression, the right to protest, academic freedom, the right to free movement, the right to simply live, and all sorts of other rights are implicated. But um, we've got to eternally be vigil in, in defending those everywhere and, and Tom, these rights can be lost very quickly when, when people don't stand up to them, and um, when those rights are violated anywhere, I think it's a, it's a loss for all of us. I, I came to this story on a very personal level, and I hope that through the art installation, people will resonate with it on a personal level. Like like Chris said, I, I'm a professor of students, um, and like those that were murdered, injured, and disappeared. And... Um, we care deeply about our students. You know, as teaching political science, I encourage them to get their voices heard, to get active in civic life. And um, the 43 that disappeared were on their way to a, a protest. Uh, we recently had a group of students that took buses up to the state legislature to make their voices heard, and they were not killed or injured nor made to disappear. So um, we, it, it's something that, has so many facets to it. Uh, it, it. You can relate to it on a political level. You can relate to it on a justice level. As someone with a law background, that cares very strongly about justice wherever it's needed. Um, you can relate to this as a citizen of the world. But I think at its core, it's a human story. Um, it, there's a mystery to it still. Um, you know, as a as a father. Uh, my compassion for the parents of the missing students runs very deep Um, and it has a political component that i think a lot of people who are going to look at the installation and or go to the events um, are are going to to resonate with as well and compare to similar issues that we have in the u.s this isn't far flung i mean we deal with issues of political violence we deal with issues of police violence and brutality. We deal and are always discussing about the right of our people to protest, academic freedom, so on and so forth. So you can discuss it on on a lot of different levels, on a personal level, on a political level, on, uh, you know, the the drug war um, and U.S. involvement. um, And then as A mystery, and then as a cover-up, and showing the corruption that's going on in Mexico. It's uh, it's an important issue, and um, and there's a lot of ways to come at it.
0: Let me uh, turn to Christopher Gonzalez. Um, I'm interested in your take on the, you know, Vince Brown said we could talk about the politics, but uh, you know, what really strikes him is the, the human element. And there are 43 families. Well, I guess three of the families now, DNA evidence uh, proving that their sons were killed. But 40 families still wondering. Yeah, and that's... Um
3: you know, these conversations are um, necessary. We, we have to continue to talk about this. We have to continue to tell these stories. Um, the great work that, that John is doing in his journalism uh, keeps this uh, alive. Um, at, because this, sadly, this is uh, not the end. Um, there's a, as I said earlier, there's a long history of of, of this kind of um, suppression of, um uh, you know, political stances by uh, by the citizenry of any given nation, um, and uh, Vince alluded to this. Um, you know, we are, we are, we are currently uh, in, in the United States um, seeing discussions about whether certain histories should be taught in schools. Uh, and these are often histories that affect groups that have endured violence and trauma. And there, there are, there are uh, political efforts to ban uh, the teaching of those histories to students. Um, it, it so you know Vince is 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 spot on he says this, this is this is of a piece this is this is all very similar and this is why uh, we should pay attention to this um, uh, I, I would hate for listeners to say well that's over there um, you know over here in the United States we would never do something like that Um and when we would we would hope that we would never have something like that. Unfortunately, throughout history, we, we have our own uh, um, you know kind of terrible uh, um, red letter days in our in our in our nation's history. And so um, yeah, I I think um, this this art piece this this installation is so important for um, not only just memorializing uh, the lives that that were lost and those who are left to pick up the pieces. But as um, as pieces of um, of of art and storytelling that allow someone who may not feel like they're connected. To Guerrero, Mexico, but 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 to understand it at a human level, to say this: these were young people who were trying to uh, make a better life for themselves. They were they were trying to, through their activism, you know, change uh, things for the better, and they paid the ultimate price for that. Um, You know, the opportunity to learn, the opportunity to affect. Uh, positive change in 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 your community, in your world, uh, is sac- sacrosanct, but it is also um, very precarious. Uh, that, that, that 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 this kind of thing can be taken away, um, you know, f- you know, faster than, than than we would like to fathom. And so, I I I I really appreciate. The work that is being done, um, uh, of course, you know, John and Vince are a huge part of this, Dixie, Dixie State University for for um, uh, providing the space to have um, people learn about this particular uh, atrocity. Um, and I think we are um, uh, uh,
0: better for it. Uh, we have a caller. Uh, is it uh, um, a caller in St. George? Go ahead.
2: I'm Kitty. I'm calling from St. George. I have two questions for our guests. Yes. So I'm just going to list them out. Okay. Um, and whoever can answer. So, as our guests have mentioned, the government interference and corruption is not unique to Mexico. It's happening to the U.S., too, in a more local level and pro- probably a smaller and just more discreet level. So how do we relate that this event to ourselves, in a political standpoint. And the second question is, when we see atrocities and tragedies like the 43, it's kind of hard to facilitate meaningful change that isn't just verbal support to the Mexican community, especially from like such a large geographical distance since we're in Utah. So do you guys have any suggestions on how to bring justice to this issue specifically and others like this?
0: Okay. Uh, uh, thank you for those questions, Kitty. We're coming down to the uh, just the last couple of minutes of the program, so we'll have to be brief. Uh, anybody want to tackle those questions?
2: I, I'm y- happy to join in. Y- yes. Um, so very often in the United States we say, what can we do about this? You know, what action can we take? How can we solve this? We can't always solve all the problems, and specifically for the, the people that are murdered or, or gone, We, we can't go anything, we can't go back and, and reverse, uh, that action. But I think the important thing is learn about the atrocity. Come see the installation, attend the events, stand in solidarity with the victims and their family, families, um, uh, you know, understand the world and our role in it, um, compare this event to things that are similar in your own life or in our own country. I mean, like I said before, we're having similar debates about a lot of the same issues, as as Chris uh, confirmed. Um, Understanding what happened in Iguala might help inform that. But I think the most important thing is learn about it, share the story, keep it alive, join with others around the world to, to keep a spotlight on this issue. Don't let the authorities sweep it under the rug. One of the fathers of the disappeared students I saw in a documentary said he wanted the world to see what was going on in Mexico. So the families have not given up. They continue their protests, their vigils, um, and, and neither should we.
0: Christopher Gonzalez. Yeah, just briefly. Um, I, uh,
3: you know, I, I, I think uh, what, what we should remember and we should continue to do in addition to what Vince has said is to hold power accountable. Uh, We we put our lives often literally in the hands of people, uh, institutions in power. And when those institutions and those people, those often elected officials um, uh, are are abusing power when they are involved in corruption or they are involved in, um, uh, you know, trying to gaslight people into thinking, you know, oh, that did not happen. That is the kind of action that you can take. You, you, um, and I'm speaking to the caller here, and, and to others uh, who had the same question. You know, you, you know, you can hold those folks accountable. Um, you know, it, it it may be inconvenient because perhaps it is someone who is, um, you know, so- someone who is um, someone you voted for. Um, but, but, but that is the, I think the, you know, one of the uh, sacred duties of 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 a citizen who votes in the United States is to hold power accountable and i think that um, that that you know recent history has shown that we're in a very tenuous situation in this country and there and there has to be more of that count, that kind of accountability um, and, and and you know that that will not bring back the 43 right but those are the kind of tangible things that we can do to to help
0: ensure that those kinds of things don't happen again well, uh, 30 seconds, I'll give uh, John Gibbler the last word. What, what's your biggest takeaway? Ho- what's your hope that people take away from this discussion, from your reporting, from the art installation?
1: Well, uh, Thanks again, everybody, for participating and for the questions. And I just echo what both Vince and, and Christopher have been saying, that the first step is just caring, you know, caring about the world, caring about what's happening in the world, and trying to learn and understand and stand in solidarity. And then also thinking back to how does it relate and what can we learn from other struggles, like the struggles of these families to then address issues in our own communities. And police brutality and police murder is definitely an issue that's been on the forefront of U.S. political life over the last seven years as well. Um, And learning from these struggles and sharing and bridging struggles, um, I think, are all incredibly important
0: well uh, we uh, didn't describe the exhibit but there's a website that you can go to and it's uh, called uh, uh, let me pull this up remember the 43 studentscom remember the 43 studentscom and even if you're not going to be in st. George uh, you can take a virtual tour of the installation by going to remember the 43 students.com Um and uh, the, it's basically uh, forty three life-size plywood human silhouettes. It's be uh, going up tomorrow on the Dixie State University campus, various areas across campus. And then there's a forty fourth silhouette with a mirror so that you can see yourself in the in the forty three. Uh, other things happening, and of course, uh, don't forget the. Uh, Uh, The talk, the conversation with John Gibbler and Vince Brown, that'll be happening on September 23rd, 4 p.m. at the Gardner Ballroom on the Dixie State University campus. We thank uh, John Gibbler, journalist, uh, who's uh, done a lot of research on this. Uh, John Gibbler, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Vince Brown, director of the Dixie State University Institute of Politics, has joined us. Thank you. My pleasure. And uh, Christopher Gonzalez, Director of the USU Latinx Cultural Center, Professor of English and Associate Dean of the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences, thank you for coming in. Thank you for the opportunity. And thanks everyone for listening to Access
4: Utah. It's many cultures, one sky. Skywatcher Leo T here as we look up, look around, man, let's get lost in space, huh? As we look into the West, we can do it from Earth here, look at the orange-pink dusk, we can see bright Venus just above all this, which is getting just a bit higher every night, and. Looking south and east, the moon grows and hovers in the blue, moving toward the harvest moon on the 20th. The harvest moon in the northern hemisphere is the full moon closest to the autumnal equinox. This year the autumnal equinox comes on September 22nd at 1.21 in the afternoon as summer officially slips into fall. Yeah, already. And the moon, as it grows toward full, will be hanging near Jupiter and Saturn in the southeast. The solar system's biggest planets are still at their closest visual peak for the year, If you get up in the slick rock outside of Moab or by a river or lake in the dark along the Wasatch Front, you might be able to pick out the moons of Jupiter with binoculars, even with the blazing moon nearby or even in the city. I watch them a bit every night when I can, and the four visible Galilean moons change positions every night. Kind of fun to see what weird configuration the cosmic pool balls are going to be in next. Nearby to the right, the tilted rings of Saturn change as well. And speaking of Jupiter, the big planet got whacked again. Southeastern Brazilian observer jose Luis Pereira captured a bright flash on the solar system's largest planet Monday night, the 13th, witnessing the fiery evaporation of a space rock high in the Jovian atmosphere. Mr. Pereira watches the planets every night in southeastern Brazil and was filming this when it happened. Way to go. Jupiter gets smacked quite a bit, as you may know. It orbits close to the main asteroid belt and has tremendous gravitational pull. You may remember this in July 1994. Remember Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9? Breaking up and the fragments tore apart holes in Jupiter that lasted for months. We watched this with telescopes in front of Hanson Planetarium as one of them plowed into Jupiter one after another. This opened a window below the cloud tops and astronomers studied the impact sites discovering a deeper understanding of the gas giant's atmospheric composition. On Skywatcher, Leo T, it's many cultures, one sky. And let's visit Brazil, where everyone looks up and around. This from Beatriz Garcia from May 19th, 2020, published in Aldia. In May of 2020, the Brazilian city of Magé, just north of Rio de Janeiro, made headlines for something as exciting as a sighting of orbs floating and disappearing and reappearing. Thousands of people witnessed and uploaded videos showing luminous orbs of blue, red, and yellow moving across the sky. Hmm, that's kind of amazing. And from NASA, science history, the night sky is filled with stories. Cultures throughout history have projected some of their most enduring legends onto the stars above. Generations of people see these stellar constellations. Hear the associated stories and pass them down. This one is the Brazilian constellation of the Old Man long recognized by the Tupé people of native Brazil. The Old Man is composed of the beautiful and sparkly strand of stars that run from a star cluster called the Hyades. It's in Tars the Bull, running through Orion and on above to the Seven Sisters or Pleiades. Check out an image and a link to check that out and all the resources for this episode. So keep the imagination soaring, look up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. on UPR with Translator Station statewide and streaming live.